This morning we're going to dive back into our, or continue in our series in the book of Acts, and we're going to be looking at the last part of chapter 11, but the, as we kind of consider our our time, our days, our uh, this season of life, we can wonder kind of what is the purpose, or what is God, and what God, is God's word for his church, so to speak? How do we continue to move forward as his church in a season that is different, that's unique, that uh, provides a whole host of challenges. Well, in Acts 11, we see a church that is is newly formed, but it's actually facing some different challenges. And they're encouraged in a specific way, and that encouragement is actually relevant for today. It's relevant for all time. And we're going to be seeing that encouragement, understanding that encouragement. And I hope that what we walk away with is a sense of God's purpose for His church and the encouragement that He's giving, this encouragement that is consistently needed in our own lives to carry out the mission that God's given us to love Him with all of our heart, soul, and mind and to love others as ourselves. And so, if you would, if you'd go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 11, we're going to be looking at verses 19 uh, through verse 30. And I'll read that for us this morning. And this is what it says. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And Antioch, the disciples, were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray. God, as we look at your word this morning, may we, God, receive the encouragement that you have in your word. May we receive the correction that you have in your word. May we receive the challenge that you have in your word. And may we receive the refreshment that comes from drinking of your word. Father, I pray that the things that are stirring our heart right now would be just pushed aside and laid at your feet. I pray that distractions that are occurring in our our lives may be at home right now. God, I pray that you would minimize the distractions. And God, that we would respond to your word this morning. That we would hear your word. And Lord, men, when we face those distractions this morning, may we just rejoice knowing 
that you've placed those in our life. The distractions come because we're around others. Distractions come because we're having to, to find strength not in ourselves but in you. So God, I pray that you would take your word and you would implant it on our hearts this morning. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, as we consider this passage this morning, as we look at this, the heart of this passage is the fact that spirit-discerned encouragement is vital for Christ's church to grow in God's grace. Spirit-discerned encouragement is vital for Christ's church to grow in God's grace. Encouragement leading to growth and grace. That's what this passage is about. And so what happens at the beginning of this passage is it says here, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. If you recall last week, one of the things that we looked at at the beginning part of, of chapter 11 was the fact that the gospel has now gone not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, to those who were non-Jews. And there was this acceptance that had occurred that God had made a way through Jesus Christ that all men could be accepted, all humanity could be accepted. Those who repented and believed on Christ could have salvation. And we talked about God's acceptance. And so there was this group who had scattered. And if you recall, Stephen was what we refer to as the first known martyr, the one that died for his faith, that had gone forward into the council and had shared the gospel of Jesus, and he was stoned. And it was following that stoning that it says that the, the believers, they scattered, the Jewish believers, they scattered throughout the region because of what was happening. And so, these Jewish believers scatter throughout, but one of the things that they're doing is they're continuing to only share this gospel with other Jews. But then we're told here in verse 20, But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. So what we know is that there were men of Cyprus or Cyrene. These are the Hellenists. These are the Greek-speaking Jews the ones that were spoken of in Acts 6. And so, because they spoke the language, because they were Jewish, but had been raised and grown in a Greek culture, they knew the language. And they had a zeal. And so, if you can imagine for a moment, they were able to, to simply begin talking to the Greeks about who Jesus was. And what happens here is it says that the Lord's hand was with them. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So all of a sudden, we have this now establishment of this new church, a church that was not rooted in Judaism, but a church that is now centered and rooted on Christ. In a nation that was a foreign land. But it wasn't any city. It was Antioch. And Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire behind Alexandria and Rome. It was basically a place of culture. It was considered to be a port city. There was tremendous commerce. It would be equivalent today to something like San Francisco or New York City. It was where people went. 
and truthfully, just like those cities, they were known for their moral laxity. It was kind of like everything's cultured, everything goes. And many consider that the wickedness in Antioch was considered in line with what was taking place in the city of Corinth. And they were worshiping many gods, offering up immorality as the accepted form of sacrifice to those gods. So immorality was kind of reigning and ruling. Well, this is a perfect ground to be taken. That when the gospel and the message of Jesus was preached, the hand of the Lord was upon them and great numbers were added to them. One of the things that's really important that we see in this passage is they didn't run to a place that was favorable for the gospel. I hear this all the time. Let me move to a place where they're more like me. I have to be honest with you. God has placed you where He's placed you to be a witness, to be a light for the gospel that He has. In fact, I would argue that God didn't say be around like-minded people. He said be around different-minded people. That His truth and His light might be seen. It doesn't mean that we can't move places. It doesn't mean that God doesn't transplant us. Clearly, these Jewish believers had been moved around, had they not? But it does mean that we're not to hunt for a place that's favorable for the gospel. What we hunt for is the place that God has put us or God has called us. And so these individuals are not afraid to bring the gospel to bear. Now, the church has been established there in Antioch, and it says that word got back to the church in Jerusalem, and they send Barnabas to Antioch. Now, this is kind of interesting because the church in Jerusalem, you can imagine right now, is going, uh, are you sure? These guys, really, they responded to the gospel? And we're going to send Barnabas. Now, Barnabas in Acts 4, we know, is actually from Cyprus himself. And so Barnabas is basically sent back to his birth city. He's sent home. And it says that when he arrives, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. So he got there and it was like, oh, these guys actually love Jesus. The grace of God is over them. What's being seen is that the grace of God is at work. Lives have been transformed. And this church is actually walking in obedience to what Christ has laid out. And it says that he was glad, and that literally means he rejoiced. It basically, it's like when you walk into a place and you think you're going to have to correct something. It's kind of like, for those of you who are parents, all of a sudden, the place goes silent. And after it's been silent for a little bit, you're like, something's not right, right? And so instantly, you start heading down the hallway to a room, and what you're expecting is trouble. And you get down there, and you're like, oh, they're sitting reading a book. This is the greatest thing ever, right? No correction needed. Or they're playing with box blocks, or they're they're building something else. So you can imagine for a moment, Barnabas is actually entering, coming into Antioch, believing that there's probably going to need to be correction, but what he finds causes him to rejoice. And so then Barnabas 
says here that Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Now this is interesting. Because what we know about Barnabas was that Barnabas was a Levite. He was a generous man, we know from Acts 4. And we're told here that he was a man full of the Holy Spirit and a man of faith. A good man, a righteous man. And the reason that, that that's placed in there is that it, it's pointing out the fact that Barnabas is a spiritually discerning man. He, he's a man who the Spirit of God is granting him discernment and wisdom. And so Barnabas doesn't come in and he doesn't simply say, it's all good, let me take off. And he doesn't look for the one thing that isn't quite right and say, let me tweak it and fix it. Instead, we're told that he exhorts them. He exhorts them. See, what was being pointed out in this is that the fact that Barnabas, in his spiritual discernment, that he was seeking to encourage the church. In our churches today, we need spiritually discerning leaders. Barnabas was a spiritually discerning leader. Led by the Holy Spirit. And what he's pointing out here is that a church that is going to grow in grace, remain in God's grace, needs encouragement. I remember asking my brother-in-law, who is a, a colonel in the Marine Corps, I, I asked him, I said, what happens when you're in a battle and, and one side is being overrun? Don't you just begin to, to flood resources over in that area? And his response to me was, no, you don't. He said, occasionally you'll reinforce a line that's breaking. But most often what needs reinforcement is the line that's holding. Because you can always flank it. You can always swing around and pivot. And, and what's happening here is Barnabas is doing the same thing. He's like, listen, I'm going to give you an encouragement that is needed for the church to be able to pivot, to be able to swing around, to, to still do its business, to grow in grace. And so Barnabas provides this encouragement for growing in grace as his church, and it's an encouragement that we all need as his church that is as relevant 2,000 years ago as it is today. And so where does he begin? Well, he begins in verse 23 where he says, When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So what's the first encouragement for growing in grace as his church? We need to be consistently encouraged to faithfully pursue Christ with priority and resolve. With priority and resolve. That means that Christ is the one that is first and foremost in our life. And that we're resolved to do it. I think sometimes we can approach our faith as an afterthought. We plan for all kinds of things in life. But the truth is, is that we kind of hope that our faith in Christ and will, will grow just by somehow just walking things out. And what he's saying is there needs to be a resolve to our faith. Not one day saying, yes, I'm going to follow Christ, and the next day that looks a lot better. Following Christ is not to be like a diet. Where one day you're like, yeah, no gluten for me today, and uh, all veggies, please. 
And the next day, hey, thanks for the cheeseburger, extra cheese, lots of mayo, lots of mustard, and add a few fries and onion rings to it, right? Sometimes we do that with Jesus. Our resolve with following Christ is more like a diet than it is about true submission. See, we need to be a people who are faithfully pursuing Christ with priority and resolve. We need to be finishers of faith, not beginners of faith. We need to be finishers of faith. We need to finish strong, not begin strong. Think about your own walk with the Lord. Are you a starter or are you a finisher? Do you find yourself initially having good intentions and fade away? Or do you find yourself resolved to finish well in the end? My grandfather had a stroke and it led to severe dementia. Some of you know that the only thing that he could do was recall sermons that he had given 35 years earlier. And he knew every hymn in the hymn book. And he would walk the halls in the middle of the night of the facility that he was in, and he'd preach and he'd sing. As a kid, what I grew up with and knew was a man who was resolved, who was as strong in his faith when he began as he was when he ended. And it was evidence even as he began to lose his mental faculties, what came through was Christ. That's resolved. It's not just something that we're doing, but it is who we become. Joshua said it this way. He said in Joshua 22.5, Only be very careful to observe the commandment and law of Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love your God, love the Lord your God and to walk in all His ways and to keep His commandments, and then listen to this, and to cling to Him and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul. This idea of clinging. Are you clinging to Christ in all things? Do you feel like your life is just overrun by other things? But is the source your strength or is the source Christ's strength? Joshua 24, 14-15 adds, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. If we're going to be wholehearted about Christ, the other gods that are ruling or desiring to rule our hearts have to be put aside. I have to say that immorality is worse than obedience to God. I have to say that, that my lack of pursuit or apathy is worse than pursuing Christ. I have to put off the idols of comfort. goes on there in verse 14 and 15 in Joshua 24 and says, And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day who you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's resolve. That's saying that God is the greatest God. That His name is above all names. And no other gods are worthy of my worship. That's resolve. We need to hear that, don't we? 
I don't know how each of you are, but I know that I need to hear that periodically. I need to be reminded, put off the other gods. Move that God over to the side, get rid of it, and focus on the one true God. The second thing that he encourages them with here is he encourages them to enlist others to serve within the body. To enlist others to serve within the body. Now what's happened is the church has remained faithful with steadfast purpose in their heart to follow Christ. And it says that as a result of that, numbers continue to be added. The church has grown. And then we're told that Barnabas does this. We're told there in, in verse 25, it says, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he'd found him, he brought him to Antioch. Now, what's interesting about this passage is that Saul had been taken by Barnabas and removed from Jerusalem to be trained, to be lifted up, and to be ministered. We don't know the full time period of that, but we do know Barnabas going back to find Saul in Tarsus was actually about a year-long process. This wasn't like he went down the road, picked him up at the house, brought him back in his car. Jerusalem was 300 miles from Antioch. We know that Tarsus, the distance and time in, find, in finding Saul, it says that here in the Greek that, that it implies this laborious or labor-intensive process. So Barnabas actually steps away from the church. Well, two things are really important in that. One is the church will never rise and fall on a single person, or it shouldn't. A church should never rise and fall on a single person. Because the person is not the church. The person is a part of the church. It's Christ's church. He is the head of His church. No man is the head of His church. But Barnabas also recognizes that what the body needs to understand is that he can't do it alone. Barnabas is not intended to be the sole minister of the church. It's one of the reasons that we talk about a plurality of elders being needed to shepherd his church. In fact, Ephesians 4, 11 through, 17, 11 through 13 says this. He says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints... For the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What was the role of the shepherd? It was to equip, to train up so that the body could do the work of the ministry. Romans 12, 6 through 8 brings additional clarity to this. It says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads, with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. It's the body of Christ working together. It's never intended to be one person driving the church. And Barnabas understood this, and he understood that it may take time. 
I've listened to a couple churches that were going through search processes, and they go, you know, we can't let this take a year. I've had other people say, I can't stay in a church that's in a search process for a pastor longer than a year. If I could encourage you with Scripture, Barnabas went and searched for Saul for a year. He went around looking for the person that he knew God had as a part of shepherding this process that he would actually use to propel the gospel forward to the Gentiles. Stephen Cole adds this, If the spreading of the gospel or the functioning of the church depends on the labors of full-time missionaries or pastors, ministry will be severely limited. But if every person who trusted in Christ as Savior and Lord feels the obligation of serving Him and of telling others the good news about Him, the gospel will spread and the church will be built up. Every Christian should sense his or her responsibility to serve Christ and bear witness of Him. That means our service is not a checkbox. It's not something that we do once a month and say, well, I've done my duty. Service is not something where you come and go, I'm doing the church a favor. Service is from the heart because of what Christ has done for us. And it's something that we get to do, not something that we have to do. It's being a part of God's greater plan. The third encouragement that we see in this passage that he gives in order for the church to grow in grace, the first being of remaining steadfast or or making our faith our priority and having resolve with it. The second being enlisting others in the work of that ministry. The third being Christ-centered teaching of God's Word. The third encouragement here is Christ-centered teaching of God's Word. See, Barnabas and Saul were not teaching moralism. They weren't teaching a new law, a set of behaviors and rules to follow. They were teaching Christ. And so everything came back to Christ. When we talk about the centrality of Christ in preaching, you may have heard me speak about that before, or we talk about it. The reason we talk about that is because so much preaching today has actually become void of Jesus. It's five principles to having a great friend. It's five principles to finding the job that's going to serve you best. It might even be five principles to figuring out your spiritual gift. And all those things can be helpful. But the preaching of God's Word is to be centered on Jesus. It is to connect the Old Testament with the New Testament. It is to connect our hope and victory in Christ that apart from Christ we can do nothing. And that apart from Christ, even living morally is impossible. That the rules that we put in place we will find frustrating and discouraging and we will lose hope, not have hope. And we know that they, they did this because in 1 Corinthians 1, 21-25, Paul tells us this, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
And then he goes on in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 2, and he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He's saying, you don't need to hear what I think. You need to hear what God says. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Everything in Scripture comes back to Christ. And what happens is, is if it doesn't, we will become worker bees still trying to live out our faith in and through ourself rather than in Christ. Ian Thomas says that it's basically we, we have all the resource to live right with Christ, and yet we choose to live in the old way. That's what it's like. We live in our old strength to be moralists rather than to be submitted to Christ. Now, what's interesting about this passage here is we're told that it's the very first time that the church is called Christian. Those who are following Christ are referred to as Christians. Now, the wonderful thing about this is that this meant that they were understanding that Christ was the source of their transformation and Christ was the one that they were sharing about. We hear this in our culture today. The word God and talking about God is not offensive, but the moment you bring up Jesus, it is. People will tell you that they believe in God, but the moment you say, do you believe in Jesus, or that Jesus said that I am the way, the truth, and the life, that no man comes to the Father but through me, that's when it gets offensive. These individuals were known because they were walking and living out their faith. One person described it this way. F.F. Bruce said this. He said, Two or three unofficial missionaries in the streets of Antioch with a small group gathered around them is the way that I see this, listening to the gospel. Someone watching asks another bystander, Who are these people? The other answers, Oh, these are the people who are always talking about Christos, the Christ people, the Christians. Originally, it was this derogatory term. But notice that what they weren't anymore was Jewish believers and Gentiles. They weren't Messianic followers or Messianic Jews. They were simply Christians. They were unified because their source of unity was Jesus. What's unique about this word Christian is that in the word Greek, it literally means that last portion of the word actually means either identified with or party of. So identified with Christ or party of Christ. This is the party of Jesus. It's really relevant in our culture today, isn't it? We we face an election here in the next few months. We see division and all kinds of things. I see Christians posting on Facebook back and forth. I have to be honest. We have a responsibility as citizens within our nation to take part in that process. But our identity is not as a nation. Our identity and party is Jesus. And the party itself should not be divided against itself. And so we may have differing views and differing points, but it is ultimately Jesus. And Jesus is the one that has to be honored. And the loyalty is not to a party, but the loyalty is to Christ and his church. The goal is that God would be honored, not man. 
The goal is that God would be honored, not Democrats. The goal is that God would be honored, not Republicans. The goal is that God would be honored, not Libertarians. It's Christ being honored because we are of the party of Christ for all those who have repented and believed on Jesus. We need to be reminded of that. That Christ is to be at the center of everything. And that means that we are to love our brothers and sisters and be unified with them. We are not divided by political party lines if we are followers of Christ because we are of one party and we need to treat each other as such. Finally, he says here then, this church that's been reminded that it's important Christ-centered teaching is key that we enlist others in service and that we remain steadfast in the purpose of our heart to follow Christ. There's a response. And the response of Jesus because of this growing grace is one that's unique. And we're told in verse 27 through 30, it says, So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief for the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So here's what happens. All of a sudden, they're experiencing grace at work within the church, and they're growing in grace. And as they're growing in grace, they're given an opportunity to meet needs. And so what is a graceful response, a graceful, complete meaning response? Well, we're told here, They gave generously. And so generously giving to meet the needs of Christ is one of the ways that we respond to grace. It's one of the ways that as a body of Christ, we're growing in grace. You see, we are to give generously to meet the needs of Christ's church. And that giving is a direct response because of what Christ has done towards us and the generosity he's displayed towards us in his grace. You see, they got to be a part of meeting the need of those who needed relief. And so we're to be a generously giving church. We're to be a generously giving people if we're growing in grace. If Christ's church is going to grow in grace, our response as we watch God grow His church as we watch God work in our life and display His grace towards us, is one of generosity. 2 Corinthians 8, 1-4 says, We want to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of of the saints. Catch that? Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part. Wow. I share that because when God is working and we see what God does, then we become excited about the ministry of His church and the work of His church. And when we're excited about what God is doing and we've seen what God does in our life, 
will do anything to see that purpose and mission move forward. And we'll see that our security is not in ourselves, but is in Christ alone. As we close this morning, I just want to leave us with some words from two pastors. And Brian Bell, he put it this way. He said, a church well taught is a church that lives well, works well, and gives well. And another pastor adds this. He says, I covet that for our church. I want to be a part of a church like Antioch where growth clearly comes from the Lord. And we're also like Antioch. We become a center for worldwide impact for Jesus Christ. Then the glory won't go to the church growth principles or to any man, but to the Lord of the church who strongly supports those whose hearts are completely his. May that be our prayer this morning. That the end result is a church that makes Christ known, not their ethnicity, not their own point of view, but Christ and Christ alone. And may we be a church that is encouraged and reminded that it is the impact of Christ and His mission that transforms, not the works of ourself. Let's pray. Father, thank You that we can look at Your Word this morning and be reminded that it is You alone who brings the growth. And it is through Your grace that we can grow. Father, may we take this reminder of encouragement and may we be a church that encourages one another to remain faithful, that doesn't sit idle when we see faithlessness occurring. May we be a church that is serving and actively serving and see our service as something that we get to do, not something that we have to do. May we be a church who centers and remains centered on Christ in your word. And Father, in response, may we be a church who gives generously to meet the needs of your church, both through the church and to those individuals that we come across. So Father, may we be the church that, like Antioch, responds to those reminders. And Father, May you be known in this and not us. And we ask this in your name. Amen.